1 Peter chapter 4, Sin and Judgment. Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. For the time already past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lusts, drunkenness, carousals, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In all this, they are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excess of dissipation, and they malign you. But they shall give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For the gospel has for this purpose been preached even to those who are dead, that though they are judged in the flesh as men, they may live in the Spirit according to the will of God. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another, because love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks, let him speak, as it were, the utterances of God. Whoever serves, let him do so as by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exultation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. By no means let any of you suffer as a murderer, or thief, or evildoer, or a troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not feel ashamed, but in that name let him glorify God. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? Therefore, let those also who suffer according to the will of God entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. Amen. Before we study this chapter, it's necessary on occasion to remind ourselves why it is that when the church gathers together, that we are focused on the Word of God. Some may say that it is an inordinate, excessive focus on the Scripture, on the Bible, on the study of the Bible, on the knowledge of the Bible. Some would think that. They think that when churches gather, they ought to be about other activities, and very little, if any, study of the Bible. Serious study, 
careful study, accurate study of the Bible. To explain the rationale as to why the church should be doing so, we'll have opportunity within this chapter to emphasize that point. But at the outset, before we get to that part of the chapter, where he speaks of speaking, as it were, the utterances of God. That's what the church must know and must preach. The church itself must know the Word of God, and the preachers, the pastors, should be preaching the Word of God. Not their wisdom, but the Word of God. Because the Word of God introduces us to the knowledge of God, the true knowledge of God. Keep our place here in 1 Peter, and let's turn to the book of Hosea. The book of Hosea, where the prophet will emphasize this very point. The reason, or one of the reasons, why the people are so wayward. The people are so wicked. The people have been distracted, and they have gone off the beaten path, the highway of holiness, into bypaths that cannot profit them. Well, what is it that they had that they neglected? Knowledge of God through the Word of God. Knowledge of God, true knowledge of God through the true Word of God. We see this in chapter 4, a few passages in Hosea. Chapter 4, verse 1, 4, 1. Listen to the word of the Lord, O sons of Israel, for the Lord has a case against the inhabitants of the land because there is no faithfulness or kindness or knowledge of God in the land. Verse chapter 4 and verse 6, 4-6. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge, I also will reject you from being my priest. Since you have forgotten the law of your God, I also will forget your children. Chapter 6. Chapter 6, verses 5 and 6. Or let's read 4 to 6. Chapter 6, verse 4. 4 to 6. What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? For your loyalty is like a morning cloud and like the dew which goes away early. Therefore I have hewn them in pieces by the prophets. I have slain them by the words of my mouth. And the judgments on you are like the light that goes forth. For I delight in loyalty rather than sacrifice, in the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings." Chapter 8, chapter 8, verses 11 and 12. Chapter 8, verse 11. Since Ephraim has multiplied altars for sin, they have become altars of sinning for him. Though I wrote for him 10,000 precepts of my law, they are regarded as a strange thing. Why are the 10,000 precepts of God's law, a strange thing. Why does it seem alien and foreign to them? Something very odd. Why? Because they're not listening. They're not reading. They're not meditating. They're not preaching 
the Bible whenever they preach the gospel to others. So that the people of God, who claim to be the people of God, the so-called people of God, are utterly ignorant of the Word of God. How can that be the case? It should not be the case. Peter already told us in 1 Peter chapter 1, return to Peter, 1 Peter chapter 1, he told us how important this word is. Chapter 1, verses 23, or chapter 1, 22 to 25. Chapter 1, verse 22. Since you have in obedience to the truth purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. For you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable, that is, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls off, but the word of the Lord abides forever. And this is the word which was preached to you. Further, not only did that word save us, it sanctifies us. Chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. 2, 1 to 3. Therefore, putting aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, like newborn babes, long for the pure milk of the word, that by it you may grow in respect to salvation, if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. It is also this word that grows us. It helps us attain maturity. We need this for our sanctification. The word will save us and the word will sanctify us. And we know from many, and we shall see some more references in the New Testament, that it is the word of God that the church needs. They don't need entertainment. They don't need activities and programs. They don't need fun. They don't need to meet people and make friends and relationships. This is the focus of most churches. And that's why the true knowledge of God is lacking. Therefore, we must pursue the true knowledge of God through the Word of God. That's why we are focused on knowing what's in Scripture, from Genesis to Revelation. Returning to chapter 4 of 1 Peter, we recall that Peter's main issue or main subject is persecution against Christians. There are many kinds of trials Christians experience, but the one in particular that he wants to encourage us to pursue is in the face of persecution, pursue God. There is no excuse to deny God, to reject Christ, to waver, to compromise, to fall into sin when persecuted. He does not let up. He does not say, because you're persecuted, it's okay. God understands. It's okay to compromise. It's okay to deny Christ. It's okay not to do this, not to do that. He doesn't say that. In fact, he says the very opposite, which is also the case in other letters, such as James, the book of James, the book of Hebrews, and even in the Psalms. In the Psalms, there is nothing that says, when persecuted, it's okay if you sin. When persecuted, it's okay if you are lukewarm. When persecuted, it's okay to deny Christ. When persecuted, it's okay not to be so faithful because it won't be sin. 
It's not like that in the Psalms. It's not like that in Hebrews, James, or in 1 Peter. Instead, the very opposite is said to us. We must press on in the face of persecution. And this persecution, the apostle will highlight at the beginning of our chapter, chapter 4, and at the end of our chapter. Now, this message is completely also, completely contrary to modern views of what Christianity is. Most people think Christianity is about health and wealth. This world, but it's not. It's about the world to come. Preparation for the world to come. Chapter 4, verse 1. In verses 1 to 6, this is persecution from former friends, former friends or family. He says, firstly, in verse 1, Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose. Therefore, well, we were reminded of his death and resurrection in chapter 3, verse 21, where he spoke of the resurrection of the dead, which provides us the good conscience. The death and resurrection of Christ is our source of salvation and even our sanctification and glorification. Since Christ suffered like this in the flesh, and in the flesh does not mean our old nature or fleshly carnal man, This phrase, sometimes in the New Testament, whether in Peter or Paul, in the flesh, refers to our human nature, our physical body. Christ suffered by death in the flesh. Since Christ suffered that way, he died by his body being taken away, by the authorities putting him to death. He says also, arm yourselves also with the same purpose. Yes. So that a little bit of ridicule, or even a lot of ridicule, a little bit of slander, or a lot of slander, should not bother us. Why? Because we have not yet been put to death. He says, arm yourselves also with the same purpose, the purpose of dying. Just as Christ died, we shall also die. If we pursue righteousness and the people around us despise it, we shall also die. We're supposed to be prepared for the same purpose. He says, why? Verse 1, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Suffering in the flesh causes us to cease from sin. Is that not our goal? Is that not our goal? To cease from sin by suffering in the flesh? When Jesus preached the gospel in Luke 9, 9, 23, He says, if any man wants to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. 
Deny oneself is to deny our sins. Take up the cross and follow me. As he had to take up the cross and be crucified, we must be ready to take up the cross and be crucified. So that whatever we are experiencing in terms of persecution, sufferings related to persecution, it's nothing. It's nothing compared to being put to death. But even being put to death, he's going to explain here in this paragraph, similar to what Jesus said. Do not fear those who kill the body, when afterwards are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Don't fear man who can just put our bodies to death. Fear God who can put body and soul to death forever in the second death in hell. Matthew 10, 28. Verse 2. So as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. The rest of the time we have in the flesh, meaning in our physical bodies before we die. What is it that we should be doing? This is not a fav- one of the favorite passages of antinomians, of libertarians, libertines, who say we have Christian liberty to live as we please. No, he says here, the rest of the time in the flesh is no longer for the lusts of men. The lusts of men, he doesn't mean a particular kind of lust, but any kind of evil desire. No evil desires of men, according to the will of men, but for the will of God. Our life ought to be consumed with doing the will of God. Back to the introduction. How can we do the will of God if we don't know the Word of God? The Word of God contains the wisdom of God to do the will of God. That's what we need. Verse 3. Why pursue moving forward and upward and not backward and downward. Verse 3, For the time already past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles. He means pre-conversion, before we were born again, before we placed faith in Christ, before we believed in the true gospel, the time in our life, whatever age that may have been, whatever time, whether it was 5 years, 10 years, 20 years, 30, 40 years of living in sinful ways, that time was enough. That was enough time to carry out, to practice the evil desires of the Gentiles. Yes, what did we do? Sensuality. Lusts, drunkenness, carousals, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. This is how we lived. Sensuality, doing whatever our senses wanted. Indulging in them. After all, you deserve it, as the ads say today. You deserve it. Lusts, lusts more specifically, when it's like this, it's likely dealing with Sexual sin, drunkenness, excessive use of alcohol, carousals. Carousing is always moving about, looking around to indulge oneself in whatever pleasures you want. Drinking parties, 
abominable idolatries. That's the way we were. He says that's enough time. Our past is enough time. So after our conversion, we're no longer about that. We are about righteousness. We are about godliness. We are about preaching the truth and building up one another in the faith. However, our friends and family who were our friends and family now become our foes, our enemies. Many of them do. He says in verse 4, In all this they are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excess of dissipation, and they malign you. They're surprised. They're shocked. They don't know. They can't figure it out. Why don't you run with them in the same excess of dissipation? Lack of self-control. Dissipation, lack of self-control. The same excess of lack of self-control you don't do like they used to do. You used to sin like they still sin. Suddenly there's a transformation in your life and they're surprised. Not only are they surprised, they're not surprised because of curiosity and interest and a, and a desire to replicate what they see in you in themselves. That's not what they're doing. What do they do? They malign you. They slander you. They speak evil words against you, both to you, but especially towards other people. Hey, do you know about Mary? Do you know about John? You know the way they used to be? No, they're not that way. They think they're better than we are. They think they're better than we are. They think you have to be that way to go to heaven. They think you have to believe in Jesus, and believing in Jesus means you can't get drunk anymore. Believing in Jesus means you can't practice fornication and adultery anymore. Believing in Jesus means you can't worship idols anymore. That's what they think, but they think they know it all. This is the kind of malignant speech they use against us. They malign us. They slander us. They'll even ridicule us. However, God isn't finished. God isn't finished. Notice in verse 5. He's not finished with them, nor is he finished with us. Verse 5. But they shall give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. They must give an account. They will give an account to the one who is ready to judge the living and the dead. They will be held accountable. There is a day of judgment. God isn't finished in this world. Sometimes people, many times people, rich or poor, old and young, they die fat and happy. There's no problems. But they're not ready for the judge of heaven. That's when it really counts. Because they haven't repented. They haven't believed in the gospel. But we have, we have, even those among us who have been put to death. Verse 6, he says this in verse 6, For the gospel has for this purpose been preached even to those who are dead, that though they are judged in the flesh as men, 
they may live in the Spirit according to the will of God. Why was the gospel preached to those who are dead, already dead? And how did they die? It says that though they are judged in the flesh as men, likely they were put to death, judged in the flesh as men, judged in their bodies as mere men with nothing beyond this life that they have in store. The wicked men put the Christian men to death. The gospel was preached to them prior to their death, not after their death, but prior to their death. The gospel was preached to them so that they might die for Christ. However, they may live in the Spirit, or rather by the Spirit, meaning by the Holy Spirit. This preposition in the Greek language, the form of the phrase can be and ought to be in this passage as well as we said in chapter 3. Remember we said in chapter 3, verse 18, made alive by the Spirit. Here too, they may live by the Spirit, by the Holy Spirit, according to the will of God. The Holy Spirit regenerates our spirit so that our spirit experiences eternal life according to the will of God. We have eternal life and a temporary body. They put our bodies to death, but our spirit lives forever. And of course, there is a day of resurrection. Their spirits won't live forever, but they will suffer in torment and pain in hell, in the lake of fire forever, but not ours. We will live according to the will of God. 7 to 11. Meantime, what should our behavior be toward one another? Remember, in verse 3, or 1 to 3, he told us we can't live in our sins anymore. So then, on the contrary, how should we be living? 7 to 11, he says. Verse 7, the end of all things is at hand. The end of all things is Another way of saying, we live in the last days. Hebrews 1, verse 2. We are in the last days when God spoke to us in His Son. Hebrews 1, verse 2. Now that we are in the last days, what are we doing? We are preparing for the return of Christ. And when we do prepare, we ought to be of sound judgment. Sound judgment. Sound in this context, means healthy, wholesome judgment. Not unhealthy, unwholesome judgment, but have judgment by which we think clearly about the issues at hand. Think clearly, think biblically about the issues at hand. And be of a sober spirit. Sober spirit. What's the opposite of soberness? Drunkenness, intoxication, that's the opposite. Our spirits should not be wobbly and waffly. Our spirits should be sober, strong, able to think. For what purpose? For prayer. When we allow our judgment and our spirit to be tossed here and there, 
to be pushed around, to be distracted, to be anxious, then we are not in the mindset of prayer. He says, for the purpose of prayer. What are we doing with our idle time, with our thoughts? What are we doing with our thoughts? Are we thinking about constructive, productive, biblical things? Praying for one another, thinking about one another, encouraging one another, doing something to help one another, or preparing to do that by offering all of our thoughts in prayer. Verse 8, above all, keep fervent in your love for one another, because love covers a multitude of sins. Above all, he returns to fervent love for one another, as he mentioned in 122. In chapter 1, verse 22, this is what we are taught to do the moment of our conversion. Love one another. Because love covers a multitude of sins. This is taken from Proverbs 10, verse 12. Proverbs 10, verse 12. Love covers a multitude of sins. Loving one another will prevent a multitude of sins. Our own sins and others' sins. Verse 9, be hospitable to one another without complaint. Being hospitable can be a formality, but it should be without complaint. If it's without complaint, if it's done cheerfully, if it's done willingly, then it is without complaint. But when it is not done that way, there's always griping and grumbling that goes on. Verse 10, as each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Each of us has received a gift. Each of us has a portion of the manifold grace of God. Therefore, what should we do with the gifts that we have? Serve one another. Don't let these gifts become dormant. Don't let them be uh, put aside and in the corner and forgotten like food that draws insects and worms. Don't let that happen, but employ them in serving one another as good stewards, not bad stewards, a good manager, a good steward is active, is productive, not lazy, Productive. Verse 11, the ministry, the ministry of the word. Whoever speaks, let him speak, as it were, the utterances of God. The speaker, the preacher, the teacher, he is not supposed to preach himself, but Christ Jesus as Lord. 2 Corinthians 4, 5. The preacher is not supposed to be sent to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Paul said, 1 Corinthians 1.17, 
Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Many times, preachers don't care to preach the gospel. They just care to be the officiators of baptisms, many baptisms, because then they can have notoriety. They can have numbers. They can have bigger churches. Baptisms. No. Preach the word. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 to 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 to 5. On the necessity of preaching the word, not oneself, not human wisdom, but the truth of the word, the word of Christ, the gospel. 1 Corinthians 2, verses 1 to 5. And when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. Our faith must rest on the power of God. And by this, he means the power of the Word of God. The power of the Word of God. We know this from 1.18, 1 Corinthians 1.18. For the word of the cross is to those who are perishing foolishness, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The word of the cross is the power of God. 1.18. This is also Peter's exhortation. Whoever speaks... He ought to be speaking the utterances of God or the oracles of God, the words of God. Not his wisdom, not men's wisdom, not sports, entertainment, movies, psychology, fads, music, politics. These are not the things that should be coming from the pulpits in churches. Nothing like this. It should be the unadulterated Word of God. Not in craftiness, the unadulterated Word of God. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 2. Then serving or ministering, whoever serves, 1 Peter four eleven. whoever serves, let him do so, as by the strength which God supplies. The service of God, whether it's ministering the word, which is most uh, the closest in proximity to this serving, serving by preaching the word, being a minister or servant of the word. The service of the word by the strength which God supplies. Even if it were, Serving in prayer, serving in love, serving in hospitality, serving in whatever gift we have received, verses 7 to 10, we do so by the strength which God supplies. Not human strength, God's strength. Therefore, God gets the glory. So that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. 
Amen. If God is the worker, if God is the source of strength, and He enables us by grace to do this or that for His name, He receives glory, not us. The ministry is not about the glory of men. It's about the glory of God. It should be. He returns to suffering now in 12 to 19. Suffering. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. Do not be surprised. We should not be surprised. Why? Because the prophets of old suffered. We should not be surprised. Why? Because the apostles suffered. We should not be surprised. Why? Because Christ suffered. Verse 1 of this chapter. Christ suffered in the flesh. And he also, Christ, warned us in advance in Matthew 5, 10 to 12, that they will also persecute us. Just as they persecuted the prophets who were before us, they will persecute us. It should be no surprise to anybody. It's only a surprise to those who have heard a false gospel. For those who have heard the health and, pros- health and wealth gospel, the prosperity gospel, which is not just in the hands of the charismatics. Many, many denominations, in one way or another, preach the health and wealth gospel. They have their own way of preaching it and expecting it. But everybody does it when they're preaching the false gospel. The false gospel is a health and wealth gospel in terms of what it produces or what it's claiming to produce for the people. But it's not about health and wealth. It's about following Christ faithfully as He walked till our last breath. Now, it is a fiery ordeal. There's no denying that it is difficult, it's painful, it brings lots of grief, grief, sadness, disappointment, discomfort. No, de- no question about that. That's why he calls it a fiery ordeal. But we shouldn't be surprised. Why is it fiery? Why is this ordeal, the persecutions, called fiery? Because it's for our testing. In the scripture, test is usually not in the school sense. At the end or in the middle of a semester, the students take a test. At the end of the semester, the students take a test. It's not that kind of an examination or test in the scripture, not usually. It is this, a test of the metals of gold and silver. The precious stones, they are put in the fire in order to remove their impurities. And the same is true with us. With us, we still have the impurities of sin within us. Not that we are indulgent, not that we are practicing sin, but still we do sin. And when we sin, God brings ordeals on us, fiery ordeals on us, so that we are purified from our sins. That's the kind of test. Just like with Job, Job of old in the book of Job. 
He wasn't sinning in any way, any major way, to cause God to bring all of those afflictions on him. It was for testing him. So it should not be considered a strange thing. This is innate. This is within the warp and woof of the Christian life to suffer. Verse 13, but to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exultation. He says carefully here, to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. To the degree that we share the sufferings of Christ, we keep on rejoicing, meaning he didn't suffer because he sinned. He suffered because of his righteousness. Not only in the face of men, but for our salvation. The righteousness that we are granted by faith in him. That righteousness, he suffered for that purpose. So we should rejoice and rejoice with exultation as we anticipate his return. Not that he's going to be ashamed of us and then we will shrink away in shame, but he will be glad and rejoice to see us as we will be rejoicing to see him. 14. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. When people revile us, when they malign us, when they slander us, when they say evil things against us for the name of Christ, because we bear the name of Christ and we say, this is the true Christ. This is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. When we say that and live accordingly, there's going to be people who revile us. Though they revile us, God blesses us, he says. And who's Opinion, whose view, whose word matters? Men or God? If we succumb and compromise with them, then they're not going to revile us. They're going to be happy. They're going to hold hands with us. But if we resist, they will revile us, malign us, slander us. But God will bless us because this is also proof. Proof that we persevere is proof that the spirit of glory and of God rests upon us. We have the Holy Spirit. They have an unholy spirit. We have the Holy Spirit. They have the unholy spirit of Satan. Which is better? The Holy Spirit of God is better. Suffering for righteousness is honorable. But not unrighteousness. Verse 15. There's different ways to suffer. Suffer for doing good or suffer for doing evil. Verse 15. By no means let any of you suffer as a murderer or thief or evildoer or a troublesome meddler. A murderer. Those who take innocent human life. Who shed the blood of innocent human life. So can one be a Christian murderer, according to this passage? No. 
Can one be a Christian murderer? No. Can one be a Christian thief? No. Can one be a Christian evildoer? More broadly speaking, no. How about a troublesome meddler? What does he mean? Troublesome meddler, likely he's talking about those who are rabble-rousers, those who are uh, rioters, those who commit vandalism and arson, those who are insurrectionists seeking to overthrow the government by rowdy and violent means. That's what he means by troublesome meddler. We have no business doing such to others, but there are plenty of wicked men who do that. These days they are called community organizers. Such a bland and euphemistic term by the Marxist communists. They're not community organizers, they're community disorganizers. They're community destroyers, the troublesome meddlers. There cannot not be any Christian who practices these sins. It's impossible. He says so in this passage. The scripture says elsewhere about other sins. Those sins cannot be joined together with the Christian. Verse 16. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not feel ashamed, but in that name let him glorify God. Suffering as a Christian, we shouldn't be ashamed. And this term Christian, to be like Christ. If that's what we're doing, and they ridicule us, they persecute us for being like Christ, don't be ashamed. But often that is what happens. Often we don't want people to know we are Christians. We're ashamed. He says, don't be ashamed, but in that name, glorify God. Yes, I'm a Christian. Not that we are boasting in ourselves, we're boasting in Christ. Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. 1 Corinthians 1, 17. Judgment. He returns to judgment here. 17, for it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. Judgment begins with the household of God, with the family of God. What would he mean by this, that judgment begins with the household of God? He is referring to the fact that our preparation for judgment is judgment right now. Our preparation for the day of judgment is right now. And God has judged us already right now. In what way? Well, He has judged us to be in Christ. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans 8.1 But also, He is judging us now in that He afflicts us with persecutions and other hardships. When he judges us or afflicts us with persecutions, he is judging us, or as Peter said in verse 12, he's testing us to see if we will come forth as gold, pure gold, without any 
dross, without any impurities. He's judging us now. It's beginning with the household of God, which refers to our growth or sanctification. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? See, if he is preparing us now for the day of judgment by judging us now, he is not judging the wicked right now. Many of them escape and have no troubles in this life. So if we are judged now to prepare for the day of judgment, they are not judged now. When will they be judged? That's why he says, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? What's going to happen to them? Eternal judgment. The second death. The lake of fire. And what's their sin? They don't obey the gospel of God. Look at that phrase. Obey the gospel of God. The gospel is a gospel that produces obedience. First, when we are told to repent and believe in the gospel, Mark 1.15, but also we're supposed to continue believing every day and continue to repent every day. That's obedience to the gospel of God. The false gospel does not require obedience. If you feel like believing, if you want to believe, if God is tugging on your coat, um, on the hem of your coat, if he is wooing you, then if you feel like it, if you want to exercise your free will, then go ahead. Now is your time. That's how they look at it. They don't look at it as an obligation, as incumbent, as something that they ought to do to obey the gospel of God. It is required of them to obey. Of course, many don't. And then God will judge them for not obeying both initial obedience and then regular daily obedience, obeying the gospel of God. He further explains in verse 18. Verse 18 is quoting Proverbs 11.31. Verse 18 is Proverbs 11.31. And if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? The righteous are saved with difficulty. They're saved with difficulty. Didn't Jesus have a difficult ministry? Did he not die after being persecuted and beaten? Did he not die on the cross? A crucifixion? And if we follow him, are we not also experiencing difficulties? Yes, we are saved through difficulty also. And difficulty, remember in this passage, does not mean difficulty as though I'm trying to make this one food item and it's a very difficult recipe, very complicated. Or I'm trying to solve this math problem and it's a very difficult math problem. That's not what he means by difficulty. He's talking about the persecutions that we experience from evildoers. 
That's what he means by difficulty. If it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, if that's how we are saved, through those difficulties of persecution, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? It's going to be worse for them. It's going to be very, very worse. Horrible for them. They are not going to experience any grace, any love, any mercy on the day of judgment. On the day of judgment, they only receive the righteous wrath of God. There's no second chance. Nobody's going to have a second chance after death. There's no purgatory. There's no reincarnation. There's only retribution. That's what will become of the godless man and the sinner. Only God's righteous retribution. So then, 19, Therefore, let those also who suffer according to the will of God entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. When we suffer according to the will of God, Notice here, he says, will of God. We've come across this phrase a few times. We saw it in verse 2, for the will of God. Verse 6, according to the will of God. Our verse, according to the will of God. Chapter 5, verse 2, according to the will of God. Chapter 3, chapter 3, verse 17. 3.17, which is similar to our verse 19. For it is better if God should will it so that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. If God should will it so. Chapter 2, verse 15. 2.15. For such is the will of God that by doing right, you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. And then chapter 1, chapter 1, verse 6. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. Why does he say necessary? Because it's by the will of God. It's necessary because according to the will of God or by the will of God, He has chosen for us to suffer as Christ suffered. It's His will. And that would be entrusting our souls to a faithful Creator in doing what is right. When we suffer according to the will of God, as Christ suffered according to the will of God, Christ entrusted himself to him who judges righteously. 1 Peter 2.23 He says, But kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. 1 Peter 2.23 Christ did so. Now we are supposed to do so. Verse 19, chapter 4. 19, entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing 
what is right. Shall we trust God, not fear man? Shall we believe in God, put our souls in the hand of God, rather than seeking the favor of men and pleasing men? Even if they persecute us, let's stand firm, do what's right always, because our God is faithful to us. He's our faithful creator, and he's the shepherd and guardian of our souls. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.